Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 13th, 2012. Yeah, last night I was successfully able to attend the Vertical Church event in Indianapolis without being arrested. That was quite a feat. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the work of a Berean. Stop, slow down, and compare what people are saying to see if that squares with what God's Word says in context. Now, as I said yesterday, and you know, yesterday we had a light edition of Fighting for the Faith, but <clears throat> I was uh, <clears throat> successfully able to attend uh, the vertical church event held by James McDonald at uh, Traders Point Christian Church on the uh, east side of. Uh, No, west side. Sorry, west. I'm on the east side. On the west side of Indianapolis, and um, and and I wasn't arrested. And I think, why why would they arrest you? Well, let's just put it this way: things didn't go so well. Um, at the beginning of this year, when I attempted to attend the Elephant Two Room uh, Elephant Room Two conference. Here we go. Elephant. Yeah, Elephant Room Two. Um, yeah, that that was even though I paid. To attend that event, uh, I was met by uh, hostile forces and told that if I didn't leave the premises immediately, that I would be arrested for trespassing. Yeah, you see, James McDonald and I, you know, we just <clears throat> don't get along. Anyway, yeah, maybe it has something to do with the fact that I don't particularly care for the things that he's done in Elephant Room 2 and in other places. Anyway... Um, there's some theological issues there. Let's just put it that way. So I attended the event last night <clears throat> without incident, and afterwards I was <laughs> fuming. Just at, you know, I was in fuego, to use a term that uh, James McDonald used last night. Anyway, and, and the, there's many reasons why I was not happy with uh, what you know what it is that James McDonald did. Um, at the Vertical Church event in Indianapolis, and I'm assuming that he pretty much does the same shtick uh, night after night after night after night. And so what we're going to do today, <clears throat> we're going to uh, begin at second half of the first hour. We're going to 
start to uh, pick apart some of the more interesting things that I think James McDonald said in his sermon and things that he did. And so today we'll begin the uh, Vertical Church uh, Debrief Part 1 will be today, and then future installments will uh, do some other things. Now, I have I have the the Kindle uh, edition of his Vertical Church book, and uh, and I've I'm not totally finished with it. I'm about you know eighty percent of the way through it now, and um, and so which is interesting. It's a it's a fascinating book um, on several different levels, and the primary thing is is that he says some stuff in there that um, it's. Wow, pretty outrageous. And what I mean by that is, is that let, let me let me give you a metaphor, okay? Not a metaphor, a, a, a comparison, an analogy, okay? I'm always saying the word metaphor, and sometimes they're similes. Somebody pointed this out to me. Anyway, uh, so okay, H- here's the idea: when you, if you were to purchase the uh, Vertical Church book, which by the way I don't recommend it, it's um, there, it's it's it has absolutely no power to address the problems that it it's brought up. I mean, the one thing that James McDonald is does fairly decently is identify a major problem in, in American Christianity. Huzzah. I mean, the, uh, join the club. Uh, we're all talking about the problem. We've been talking about the problem for years now uh, on this program. But anyway, he, he, he properly identifies the problem and he provides some statistics to back up uh, what he considers to be evidence for the existence of the problem. No problem with his data and the things that he's brought up with. It's the solution that he's uh, putting forward that is uh, troubling. Okay, now let me let me give you an analogy. Okay, let's pretend that you know you know that I decided to write a book to address the what I consider to be the primary problem in American Christianity. And what I decided to do was to start off chapter one of the book by taking you to a life story that I've had, okay? And uh, let's say that uh, – I'm trying to think. Uh, i got to pick a restaurant here. Hang on a second. Okay, i got a restaurant in mind. Okay. <clears throat> First time I ever went to P.F. Chang's. Okay, now it's – you know, I I've been there since, and it it wasn't as quite as good as the first time I ever went to P.F. Chang's, and it might be this you know the particular restaurant that I went to was just so excellent. But anyway, let's say um, a long time ago, I was uh, I was in uh, Sacramento, California, and I went to P.F. Chang's China Bistro for the first time. I'd never been to P.F. Chang's before, and. Uh, Ordered ordered the food there, and when they brought it out, I mean, starting with the appetizers, and then all the way through the rest of the meal. I mean, it was just mwah, exquisite. It was it was one of the most fantastic meals I've ever had in my entire life. Okay, I mean, oh, you know those little those lettuce wraps, and then and the oh, and the mushu pork, and the and the kung pao chicken. Oh, it was just spectacular. I mean, it was there was like a, a party in my mouth. I mean, it was just one of the most ecstatic experiences I've ever had in my entire life. And you're thinking, okay, great, okay, great. You know, I, I have to like food, by the way. Okay, so it, and and the, I start off by telling that story, and then at, from that story, I extrapolate that. Listen. The reason why the church is failing is because it fails to create that amazing, intense experience that I had that transcends all food experiences. Uh, when I was at P.F. Chang's Chana Bistro in, uh, in Sacramento years ago, you'd, you'd, you'd look at me and you'd go, what? So what you're saying is that the solution to the problems of the church is that they need to have these rapturous 
experiences along the lines of what you had at PF Chang's. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the way. Well, if when you read, if you were to read the Vertical Church book, that's pretty much literally the launching point for his entire solution to the you know with the problem of the church. Yeah, I mean it's part and parcel of what he considers to be the problem. What's wrong with American Christianity is is that apparently. Um, we're not bringing the glory down. And that, that, by the way, is a phrase that he used several times last night at the, uh, at the Vertical Church event in Indianapolis. We're, we need to bring the glory down. I, I looked at the friends that I was with and I went, bring the glory? How do you do that? <laughs> but anyway, but in the book, in the book, uh, what James McDonald does is he begins the uh, Vertical Church book by basically telling a story about a time when he was on the island uh, you know of Maui in Hawaii and a friend of his had convinced him to go, you know f- take a day trip you know leave really early in the morning and go to the uh, Haleakala crater you know the the volcanic uh, crater there at the top of uh, Maui uh, and watch the sun come up and he wasn't as as he tells the story i mean he wasn't all that thrilled about getting up so early or whatever and wouldn't you know it though he got up there and they were above the clouds and boom there came the sun and it was this most amazing rapturous moment and see that's the see that's the thing church has to be like this so apparently the standard by which the church is to be judged by is the standard that, uh, well, um, James McDonald has created, and that is this rapturous experience thing, bring the glory down kind of thing. And so it, the, the rest of the book pretty much outlines the things that he thinks the church should, uh, well, addressing the idea of what it is that we can do to bring the glory down, to create these rapturous life experiences. And he takes shots at, like, sound doctrine and stuff. It's It's... It's unbelievable what he does in that book anyway. And so, I mean, he was true to form last night. So what we're going to do, you know, I, I, all of this is just to kind of introduce you to the topic. I mean, there's actually, we got a packed program today. So in the second half of this hour, we're going to begin to do a debrief, like I said, on the Vertical Church event and start to pick apart the things that uh, that um, James McDonald has been saying on his tour and will continue to say as he finishes out. He's about halfway through this vertical church tour. And uh, so that'll be the second half of the first hour. But let's talk about what we're going to do the you know like for the rest of the first hour. We like packed program today. Um, we got a, a Patricia King gang update. Kat Kerr is uh, – she's got a video regarding – it's called Fun in the House. Uh, th- those of you who've, um, who who are under the impression that heaven is going to be boring. Okay. By the way, th- this is kind of a common misconception regarding heaven. Um, but um, Kat Kerr, she claims to have some special insight to hear because she travels to heaven often. At least that's what she says. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so she's going to help debunk this idea that heaven is going to be boring. Like that could never really be the case anyway. And, uh, and then I've got a, uh, a uh, pyromaniacs update. Um, Dan Phillips has written a, a, a blog post over at the pyromaniacs blog entitled leaky cannons and the moralizing gospel misfires. Okay. Leaky cannons and moralizing gospel misfires. Fascinating piece. I'll pass that along for you today. And then uh, before we go into the break, I, we've got a brand new max holiday and um, I, I'm. It's, it's been a long time since we've done. Well, we've had Rex Quando um, weigh in on a Max Holiday sketch. And listen, gotta tell you, uh, Rex Quando, uh, he's he's 
take a look at uh, Stephen Furtick's book, Greater, and uh, he's taking the gloves off. That's all I got to say is Rex Kwando has taken the gloves off, and Rex Kwando has de- decided that he's going to write his own book entitled Greater Than or Equal To. And so he's going to be talking about his new book in our new brand new Max Holiday sketch, so you're not going to want to miss that today. Then we're going to take a break. When we come back from the break, we've got a quick little snippet. Leadership advice from Craig Rochelle and the Resurgence. Leader, church leadership advice from Craig Rochelle and the Resurgence. Got to pass it along to you. Then we'll do our, our vertical church debrief. Hour number two, we're going to uh, do a sermon uh, review of um, recent sermon by Jonathan Brozazog of Passion Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota, entitled "Back to the Future." So, all I can say is that we have got a we've got a ton of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Get yourself ready, get comfortable. Tinfoil pyramid hats probably would help you today. They would help definitely deflect any of the negative ionic um, gamma. Uh, heretical radiation that could emanate from some of the things you're going to hear today. Just, just saying. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Yeah, here we go. Are you concerned that hell could possibly be boring? Well, don't worry. Um, here's a video from Kat Kerr, who travels to heaven often, and she's going to explain what she calls fun in the house, a debunking of the idea that heaven is boring. Here's um, This is Kat Kerr of Kat Revealing Kerr. Heaven, and I have to tell you about this revelation. You know what? Please do. Uh, heaven is the most fun place you'll ever live in your life. Did you ever think of that? Most people, and including the world, think heaven is going to be so boring. They don't even want to go there. Most believers actually say, what in the world am I going to do for eternity? What is it going to do up there besides bowing to God and maybe singing some songs with the choirs in heaven? Sitting- yeah, yeah. Can you imagine going to heaven and worshiping God? Who wants to do that? Yeah. Serious? On a cloud with a harp. Guess what? You don't get a harp when you go to heaven unless you already play one. You know, maybe if you want one to decorate your mansion, he might give you one. But what are you going to do with it anyway? Uh, the reason my hair is pink, by the way, I forget that a lot. God himself asked me to have pink hair. Really? God himself asked you to have pink hair? How fun of him. I mean, I just it just shows what a great sense of humor he has. For the, for the reason that you will know heaven is going to be a whole lot more different than we thought it was, he takes me nonstop on tours of heaven so you can know what's really there. And the thing he asked me... Yeah, are, are you not taking your meds? The very first thing he said is, your assignment is to make heaven so real they could feel like they could live there, and they have to know it is going to be fun. He did tell you you had to be like a little child to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and he didn't say that because it was going to be sober and profound and serious. He said that because you will act and feel like a little kid. I see people getting out of transports and chariots and just running in circles, yelling and laughing. They're so excited because it's so much more amazing than they thought it would be. You'll see people celebrating, dancing in the streets, uh, just grabbing everybody and hugging them. And you have parties everywhere in heaven. Heaven created 
parties, okay? We didn't make them on this earth. They did. They celebrate over everything. And so there is a lot of fun in the house. And I say house because you know what the word says. In my father's house are many mansions. And people have this idea of a lot of rooms crammed inside of a big building. Forget that. His house would be the world called heaven. How big is it? So big that they have angels in heaven bigger than our planet. So let me take you out of your box today and share some of the fun places he's shown me in heaven. Yeah, please do. I mean, having never been there myself, I mean, I, I feel kind of at a loss. Can you draw a map for us? You maybe can have it illustrated like Disneyland or something, you know? Yes, they have movie theaters in heaven. They invented it. We didn't. They have fantastic, exciting, intense, uh, hilarious movies in heaven. If you ever wanted to be, you get to be. You go in the one door of the theater and sit and watch the movie, or you go down the hall in another door and you literally step into the movie. You're in the movie. Wow, yeah. Acting. So how about that? That's a whole lot better than down here on this earth, isn't it? A lot of fun, exciting movies that are shown on the earth actually make it to heaven, but they do have some certain criteria you have to meet. You know, it's just amazing that, I mean, so do you think the new Batman movie made it to heaven? Never see anything defiling, disgusting, vile, no sexual content. No. Well, then why would any movies make it to no profanity, no crude humor. Isn't that wonderful? Just think, anyone can go see the movies in heaven. I think they need to get a clue on this earth, okay? If they want it shown in heaven, they better straighten out a little bit of those things. Yeah, but see, I, I'm concerned that um, that the people in Hollywood, if they knew that their movies are being played in heaven, but so few of them make the cut anyway, that they're going to be worried about you know, box office receipts and stuff like that. I mean, they, they really are interested in counting the money. But I can tell you, they have amazing movies in heaven. They have an amusement park in heaven where you can ride on carousels where the animals are alive. They don't have a post to them. They have like a little platform that goes up and down. Your kids get to ride on elephants and porpoises and baby dinosaurs and unicorns. The real thing, okay? You think they, you want to know what your kids are doing in heaven if they're there? They're riding the carousels in heaven. They're yeah, this is it. <clears throat> you know, I, I'm really beginning to think that, uh, that um, Patricia King needs to implement some kind of mandatory drug screening um, for any of the video people um, for XP Media. Eating the cotton candy and the candied apples and popcorn and pies. And yeah, they do get some other stuff too. But you know what? Uh, It doesn't matter if you have a sweet tooth in heaven. Heaven was made for you. There's no food allergies, no weight gain. Uh, Your children, if they're children, they get hoverboards. They go together in groups all over heaven, even around the age of five. They can't get lost. They're not going to get hurt. There's so many exciting things for them to do. They even have a place called Cartoon Village. And you can just guess what happens there. You get to create your own cartoon and then you're in the cartoon as a cartoon it's- wow yeah that's just you, sh- you sure you've been there just uh- isn't that fun just think i think every kid living in heaven's probably experienced that you say how can that possibly be because it's not earth all right we're not yeah okay yeah. so people here in heaven you're a supernatural eternal being and you do supernatural things they have a a place called christmas town in heaven i've mentioned it before you you like snowball fights and skiing and ice skating you go to christmas town when you go into a new place in heaven there's buildings you walk through those buildings put on the the outfit 
outfit you need to enjoy that part. Everything fits you. There's no 10 different sizes. It just conforms to your being. You go on uh, sleigh rides, have hot cocoa, uh, have huge snowball fights. You enjoy that part of heaven. God wanted it to be fun so you can enjoy your life. No one is resting in heaven. They need to, they need to wipe RIP off the tombstones and they need to say enjoying the party or riding the rush. Or, or yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I, you know, I'm sure I'm, one hundred percent convinced by scripture, uh, not by you, that uh, heaven is going to be greater than we could possibly imagine. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of it. But I got to tell you this, okay? And that's this. I could care less. I could care less about an amusement park. I could care less about a carousel or a Christmas town or any of that stuff. The thing that I want to see the most in heaven is Jesus Christ face to face. Just the idea of being able to see the God who spoke our world into existence and who created you and created me and died on the cross for our sins. Yeah, there's nothing boring about that. That's the thing I look for the most. This other stuff in cat, yeah. I, I sorry, I just I'm not buying your story. It just sounds like, yeah, it's, you know, a really happy town. Okay, um, I don't believe you've been there. I don't believe God told you to paint your hair pink or any of that kind of stuff. The reason why is because you don't tell me about the glory of Jesus, you know, in, at all, and yet He's the one. To whom every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Get me Jesus, and I'll I'll, I'll be ha- I'll be happy to live on a park bench in heaven for eternity, as long as I can see Jesus face to face. All that other stuff, it's just stuff. But Jesus is our God. All right, moving along from the Pyromaniacs blog. The headline reads. Leaky Cannons and Moralizing Gospel Misfires, an analogy by Dan Phillips. Dan writes, he says, It struck me forcefully as I was praying today that there is a parallel between the leaky cannon position and the false gospel of moralism. By the way, if you don't know what a leaky cannon is, um, the cannon, C-A-N-O-N, is the Bible. Okay, It's the measuring stick It's by which we measure all doctrine and test every teaching, right? A, somebody who ha, has a, quote, leaky canon is one who still believes in ongoing special direct revelation from God, okay? And uh, Dan Phillips calls them leaky cannoneers. And he's, in this article, he's drawing the parallel between those who are leaky cannoneers and of the false gospel of moralism. Let's continue. Uh, Dan writes, he says, what is that false gospel? Well, it's the idea that we need more and or better rules. It sees Jesus as a great teacher, a great enabler, a great example. It brings in biblical imperatives as laws we must keep to win God's favor and then moves perhaps to uh, to improve on those laws for the same reason. It's similar to the classmate at seminary who, when I suggested that the student handbook section on conduct just single out directly biblical issues such as lying 
and stealing and immorality, he then replied that all that just isn't specific enough. To that, biblical Christians uh, reply that more rules would just damn us more. We're sinners. We don't live up to the light that we have. More light means more condemnation. More rules means more guilt. If the problem were lack of guidance, they might help, but the problem is sin. And rules simply serve to stir in or stir up sin. See Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 11. That is why we need sovereign grace to save us, not more rules. So what does that possibly have to do with the leaky canon error? We have 66 books full of the inerrant, sufficient, and morally binding revelation of God's heart. It claims to impart absolutely everything we need to know in order to know and serve God. So let me ask, is there any sane, rational, even marginally sentient being who would claim that the professing Christian church as a whole is doing a very good job of teaching and preaching the contents of those 66 books? No. So then let me ask this. Is there any sane, rational, even even marginally sentient being who would claim that professing Christians as a whole are doing a very good job of studying and learning and practicing, let alone even working out working to support churches that teach and preach the contents of those sixty six books? Yeah, no. Leading us in or inexorably to ask. That being the case, how can anyone argue that what we really need is more words from God? But wait, it gets even worse. Given that 106 years of leaky canon errorism has not yet produced even one universally acknowledged syllable of prophetic level revelation from God, and given that in light of that 100% failure, they have worked hard to lower the bar and redefine what they promised so as to remove it from the uh, arena of falsifiability, we must reword the question. How can anyone argue that what we really need is more semi-sorta, hazy, mumbly, jumbly, foggy, indistinct words from God at several degrees of removal? More words from God given our failure to be faithful to what we already have and absent repentance would simply mean more failure and more faithlessness. But more words from God given our failure to be faithful to what we already have and absent repentance would simply mean more failure and more faithlessness. But more words from God that really aren't necessarily words from God but that maybe might kind of be words from God and that claim to be essential for real and vital living relationship with God, though they require 1,000 time and focus devouring, diverting qualifications. Yikes. All of which takes us right back to the sufficiency challenge and leaves leaky canonism as exposed and repugnant in its distinctives as it should have been all along. Great piece, Dan, by the way. Great piece. Okay, we're up on our first break. During this break, we'll be premiering the brand new Max Holiday sketch uh, with Rex Quando um, taking issue with um, Stephen Furtick's book, Greater. Don't want to miss that. 
If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh-huh. Right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. Hello.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, uh, leaky cannoneers, um, well, we don't need them. We have, the Bible is fully sufficient. Avoid the leaky cannoneers. It'll save you all kinds of heartache. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Inexpensive to you, but it means all the world to us and of course if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 okay it's now time for leadership advice from craig rochelle and the resurgence here we go And in this segment, we're going to learn how to disrupt your rhythms strategically. This was written by Craig Rochelle and is at the Resurgence website. And you can find it there if you visit theresurgence.com. The longer you do ministry, the easier it becomes to minister from memory. You tend to do what you used to do, 
It is safe and comfortable and convenient. To stay spiritually and creatively fresh, I suggest strategic disruptions. Today, we'll talk about how to disrupt life's rhythms. Because people can be creatures of habits, life often looks relatively similar from day to day, week to week, and year to year. I suggest defining your rhythms and then disrupting them. Here's some, well, practical suggestions. If you drive the same way to work, take a different road. If you study the Bible the same way, try a different approach. If you listen to the same type of music, tune into something entirely different. If you read the same books, stretch yourself. Read out of your comfort zone. And if you order the same thing off of the menu, venture out and try something that you've never had. By disrupting your rhythms, you may experience just enough to change your perspective slightly. Suddenly, you could be more sensitive to hear something new from God. This has been a segment of leadership advice for church leaders from Craig Rochelle and the Resurgence. I hope you found it helpful. Look out, pink elephants on parade, here they come, hippity-hoppity, they're here, and there, pink elephants everywhere. Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed, on their head, clippity-hoppity, parade, in braid, pink elephants on parade. What'll I do, what'll I do, what an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but Technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you a lawful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid! Need your aid, big elephants on parade! Big elephants. Yeah, that's our uh, song for a James McDonald update, going back to uh, the fact that he's the one responsible for the Elephant Room 1 and 2. All right, so uh, James McDonald uh, was on tour, he's been on tour, he's still on tour, and uh, last night he made a stop in uh, Indianapolis. And I attended the event, took copious notes, and I have some audio from it, and we're going to begin to uh, do a debrief on what it is that James McDonald said at the vertical church event and i'm assuming that he's pretty much got a stump speech and so when he goes from town to town to town to town to town that he's pretty much saying the same thing you know night after night after night after night i mean that's generally how these things go what i found fascinating was what he let off with when he finally got to the point where he was talking by the way the event started at seven okay seven o'clock in indianapolis okay he didn't begin saying anything substance until well after 8 o'clock and the event went till 9, okay? 
What I found fascinating was, in, <laughs> like in the worst way possible, was that, kid you not, from the time he began preaching until the time he really did say something substantive, we went like 35, almost 40 minutes with him exegeting half a sentence. And it was a miserable handling of the text, by the way, from Isaiah 64. But anyway, here's, you got to hear this to believe it. This is what... Um, James McDonald led off with last night, and and my head was spinning. I was absolutely incensed. See if you can make any sense of this. Here's James McDonald from last night's uh, Vertical Church event at um, Traders Point Christian Church in, on the west side of Indianapolis. Here we go. And uh, I want to draw your attention while others are filling that out. I want to draw your attention to uh, Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. You can turn if you want, but it's just going to be a brief moment here, and I'm going to quote the verse for you. So he's going to start off in Jeremiah. Jeremiah. I apologize for the quality of the audio. Jeremiah chapter 5 says that an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. It's a prophecy, a prophecy that's coming true in our day. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Uh, the appalling thing is, is that... The word appalling, by the way, means it sickens me. The word horrible means I can't look at it. And he lists the three things. The appalling and horrible thing that I believe is happening in our nation is this. One, prophets prophesy falsely. What that means is that people have, who have the responsibility to take the word of God and sound forth the message of God um, are not doing it. Uh, pastors are supposed to be heralds. They're sounding forth the message. And the message that we have from our king is called the Bible. And so we're just heralds. We're not, we're not a very big deal at all. The messenger is really nothing. It's the message. It's everything. And we're the mouthpiece of the word of God to the people of God. And they desperately need it. Their souls are famished for it. But the appalling and horrible thing that's happened in the land is, is that prophets, those who are appointed to speak for God, are prophesying falsely. Okay. So he begins with reading a passage from Jeremiah chapter 5 about this appalling, horrible thing that's happening in the land that prophets are prophesying falsely. That he would have the audacity to lead off with this is just mind-boggling. This is the man who, as far as I'm concerned, is the one who is most culpable in the greatest doctrinal crime committed in the 21st century in the church. And I know it's we're pretty early, okay? But he is almost single-handedly responsible for mainstreaming T.D. Jakes, the Word of Faith heretic, who is a modalist. Now, I understand that he affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'm putting that in air quotes here, at Elephant Room 2. But if you pay attention to what he said, T.D. Jakes affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity so long as he could speak of it in modalistic terms. Okay? Which basically means he really didn't affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. He affirmed the doctrine of modalism. The heresy of modalism, okay? And 
he he was trying to have his cake and eat it too. If you're you need to be brought up to speed as to what happened, go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, late part of January of this year, 2012, and listen to the series of episodes. I mean, we early January, early uh, late January, early February. Uh, that we did regarding Elephant Room 2 and that whole debacle, okay, that that James McDonald would lead off to complaining about the fact that there are people who are preaching falsely. But by the way, he's also buddy-buddy with guys like Perry Noble and, and Stephen Furtick, okay? I mean... Is, is he going to call them out for their false teaching and false doctrine for the lame hermeneutic in the in the greater book, for the lame hermeneutic that's going to happen that's in the upcoming book, Unleash? Of course not. Okay? Now, this kind of leads to my, you know, to my speculation. Why is it that he's leading off with this primary complaint? Okay? Uh, my, I, I'm going to speculate at this point. If I had to hazard a guess, and that's what this is, it's just a guess— I think Elephant Room 2 hurt James McDonald. It hurt his reputation. And so the reason why he's making this 40-stop tour, or at least one of the primary reasons, is to basically undo the damage that he did to his own reputation so that basically he can come out looking like being, like he's tough on false doctrine. But he's not, okay? He's absolutely not tough on false doctrine. If he were, he would call out Stephen Furtick and guys like T.D. Jakes and others as being heretics and people who are twisting God's word. Let me remind you of what uh, James McDonald said in early February on Moody Radio on the Chris Fabry uh, live program. Here, Here's audio from that just to remind you. No, I would say that probably the real rub comes at this point. Is is that um, a lot of people have asserted very strongly that they do not believe that T.D. Jakes is a Christian, and I would disagree with that uh, adamantly. Crawford Loritz, who's well known to the Moody family and um, and uh, speaks frequently at the Moody conferences, is also a Gospel Coalition member, and he agreed wholeheartedly with me that the assertion that T.D. Jakes is not a Christian is outrageous. Right. Yeah, outrageous. To say that T.D. Jakes is a heretic, that he's not a Christian, is outrageous. This is a man who is a money-grubbing, manipulative tele-evangelist who is known for his basically, you know, fleecing of Christians and believers and people, promising them the world if they will just sow a seed of money into his ministry or in TBN. And for years including this year has hasn't given a straight answer regarding the doctrine of you know the godhead and has a history of preaching and teaching modalism i would point you to alpha and omega ministries go back into the archives of the dividing line put out by uh, dr james white uh regarding the things that historically T.D. Jakes has taught regarding the Trinity. They've got fantastic audio sound bites of him flat out teaching the modalistic heresy. And so what I mean, so here you've got on the one hand earlier this year, um, James McDonald being the the kingpin in the greatest doctrinal crime of the 21st century, basically trying to mainstream a flat out televangelist heretic like T.D. Jakes. And then turning around on Moody Radio and saying that it's outrageous to say that he's not a Christian. 
And then on tour, during the Vertical Church tour, he leads off with a passage from Jeremiah complaining about the fact that prophets are prophesying falsely in the land. You have got to be kidding me. He hasn't got any doctrinal integrity to stand on. It would be one thing if James McDonald on tour was saying, listen, I was wrong. I was flat out wrong. And part of what I need to do is publicly apologize and repent for trying to mainstream a heretic like T.D. Jakes. Instead, he is not doing that. Instead, he's basically being like a politician. This is this is very Clintonian, if you would. Being acting like a politician, a head of state, maybe King James McDonald here doing political damage control and spin, looking basically trying to on a stump speech on a tour make it like make it look like policy wise he's tough on false doctrine when his record shows that he's nothing but completely and categorically compromised when it comes to doctrine, and he himself and his actions are responsible for some of the greatest doctrinal crimes in all of history. That he has the gumption to lead off, the gumption to lead off the Vertical Church Tour by complaining about heretics, it's unbelievable. I mean, seriously, this would be like Barack Obama complaining about the fact that Americans are just not tough enough on socialists and communists. (sighs) Let's listen to a little bit more. They're not speaking the word of God. They're speaking, you know, their Western world, watered-down, hyper-therapeutic, pseudo-helpful, quasi-doctor-filled kind of nonsense on Sunday morning. Right, that would be like your buddy like Rick Warren and others, right? What about the word of faith heretics? You're complaining about... And and it's starving the people of God. So, and, and it's not a small deal, okay? You go to a good church, you really don't have any idea just how bad it is out there. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Prophets are prophesying falsely. Second thing, priests, those given elders, deacons, pastors, leaders, church leaders, Jeremiah said, are ruling on their own authority. They're ruling on their own authority. Instead of searching the oracles of God and the word of God for what the church of God is supposed to be, What about your vision-casting buddies like Perry Noble and others, huh? I think leadership seminars and technique presentations and all sorts of strategery about how to fill seats. Okay, i got to back this up. you got to hear what he's complaining about. Leadership seminars. He's one of the primary leaders at the upcoming Resurgence Leadership Conference. Who's he sharing the stage with? The likes of Rick Warren and, and, you know, like that. (sighs) They're ruling on their own authority. Instead of searching the oracles of God and the word of God for what the church of God is supposed to be, they're attending leadership seminars and technique presentations and all sorts of strategery about how to fill seats and how to move people. And a lot of it isn't even wrong. It's just not God. Right? And, and they're ruling on their own authority. I think it should be this. I think this, here's what we could do. Here's what I think would work. Here's what would be clever. Here's what would be creative. Here's what would be helpful. And, and what's the word again? It's, it's, it's appalling. I don't know how appalling it is to you. You can look at your own heart. But if you see it clearly and your heart is where it needs to be, we should be deeply aggrieved and offended even by the state of the church in America. I'm going to say a lot more about that in a moment. Yeah. 
we should be deeply grieved and offended by the state of the church. And yet you're responsible for one of the gravest and most grievous offenses in all of church history. Un, it, I mean, the book 1984 and the concept of doublethink comes to mind. That's how preposterous and absurd this is. And that's just the tip of the iceberg as to what happened at the Vertical Church event in Indianapolis last night. We'll fill you in on some other things in future segments here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We're going to be going back up to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota to Passion Church. Hang on, I'll cue this up and do it right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Passion Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Jonathan Brozozog presiding. 
The name of this <clears throat> masleration is entitled Back to the Future. Yes, it's based somewhat thematically on the uh, movies from the 1980s. <laughs> I mean, how that's relevant, I have no idea, but... Anyway, this is going to be a twisting of the concepts of, well, that's taught in Jeremiah 29.11, which happens to be like one of the favorite ways in which people twist the Bible nowadays in seeker-driven churches, that somehow Jeremiah 29.11 promises you individually that God is going to make things great for you and that your best days are still ahead. It's not what this text teaches, and I'll explain that in a minute here. So without any further ado, let's kill the music. Here is um, Jonathan Brzozog and his sermon entitled Back to the Future. Here we go. How was that for an entrance? Did you come in in a DeLorean? Man, they did not make that for big people. I told him I was trying to get in and out of it, and I said... People are going to be able to sell tickets to watch me get in and out of this thing at the state fair. So, how you guys doing? Welcome to Passion Church. You guys ready for our series, Back to the Future? This is going to be a great series. And we are pumped that you're here today. And we pray that this just blesses your heart and blesses your life. How many of you saw the movie or the trilogy, Back to the Future? Anybody in the house? What a cool series. We all grew up with that. And it's really funny when you think about some of the things that they thought would be in the future and some of the things that they didn't think of. Like, for instance, in the future, they thought, you know, we'd have flying cars, but we still had to use pay phones. Um, they, they thought of, like, televisions that dropped out of the ceiling, but they're still huge and fat and weigh 800 pounds. Uh, so it's just funny the things that they thought would be in the future and the things that um, weren't. But this series, the premise of this series is focused on Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. How many of you believe that the best days of your life are in front of you? Anybody with me on that? So, Okay. From time to time, I've got to spend time in this passage. I hate having to be redundant, but... Uh, we have enough new listeners that this is one of those passages that from time to time we've got to revisit because there's so many people taking it out of context. So here, uh, Brian, uh, Jonathan Brzozog wants us to believe that our best years are ahead of us. Now, for some of us, that may be true. For some of us, that may not be true at, like, at all. Um, and, and by the way, you're not sinning if you don't believe that your best years are still ahead of you. Okay. So let's take a look at Jeremiah 2911. Uh, and we're going to do this applying our three r- rules, primary rules for sound biblical hermeneutics and exegesis. Here's the idea, okay? You put it back in context to take a look if what the pastor is saying squares with what the text really says when you take it in context. You, you can rip any verse out of context and make it say whatever you want. But when we put it back in its context, will it say that, listen... All of you Christians out there, your best years are still ahead. If you believe in God, your best years are ahead of you. By the way, though, I want to make something clear. In one sense, that's absolutely true. Okay? If you are a penitent believer and you trust in Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, that he died on the cross for you, for your sins, rose again on the third day for your justification, your best years are still ahead of you. However, they may not be the years that you are facing here on this temporal earth, okay, in this temporal transitory life. Your best years, okay, believe me when I tell you this, uh, um, Joel Osteen has this completely wrong. I mean, anybody who's foolish enough to believe that their best life is now has no clue as to what it is that God's promised in his word regarding the new heavens and the new earth, okay? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, okay? And trust me, there's no sin in heaven. There's no sin in Christ's kingdom. And he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth someday. And it's going to boggle the mind. No, Nobody has even remotely come close to imagining it, imagining what it is that God's going to do in that, in that new creation. Okay? You... And speculating about it is going to get us absolutely nowhere, just absolutely nowhere. There's like little bits and pictures of it, you know, in several passages within the scriptures. And all of that's just to whet your appetite because you have no clue what's coming. So in one sense, you can say, yes, absolutely true. Our best years are ahead of us. We can embrace this concept biblically, and we don't need Jeremiah 2011 to 2911 to do this. But however, we have to take... Jonathan Brzozog's teaching at face value and look at what he's doing in this particular sermon, okay? That being the case, we need to do a little bit of history, okay? Here's the idea, okay? God takes the children of Israel out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Moses is his, uh, is his you know, basically man on earth, is, is you know, the, the man who's the prophet, so to speak, and God tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and there's 10 plagues, and God literally mightily brings the children of Israel out of slavery in on their way to the promised land. Now, we understand that they didn't believe, and they grumbled, and, and it was really bad, and so that generation died out, and all but just a few, I mean two, really. Um, none of them get to see the promised land and, and enjoy it, um, but that generation that came up that were children, they are the ones who, when they grow up and the, the other generation dies out, they are the ones who take the promised land. Now, the, the, the covenant that they had with God, all of the responsibility was on them and all the curses were on them, and they failed to keep the covenant. And no sooner did the, uh, the people who witnessed the miracles in the wilderness die, than immediately Israel starts going squirrely. And what I mean by that is, is that they began worshiping other gods, falling into idolatry, and then from there into all kinds of pagan hedonism. I mean, just horrible stuff, okay? God sends judges, and, you know, and there's a cycle where, you know, God God sends them back and, you know, puts them under, uh, you know, other groups like the Moabites or, uh, you know, and things like that, the Philistines and others. God delivers them. Ultimately, they get a king, the kingdom splits into two because of the idolatry of Solomon. The northern kingdom and the ten tribes with it, they flat out rebel against God, go deep into apostasy and idolatry, and literally God scatters them to the four winds, and good luck finding them now. Okay, The kingdom of Judah remains, and they follow the, they follow the same path 
that the northern kingdom followed deep into idolatry. Now, God promising the Messiah holds a remnant for himself, but you know, in the last days of the, uh, the kingdom of Judah prior to Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Israel is in full-blown rebellion against God, full-blown apostasy and idolatry, full, I mean, just terrible stuff. I mean, sacrificing their children, um, you know, to Molech, uh, worshiping Asherah, Baal, engaging in human sacrifice, um, I mean, and temple prostitution. I mean, just, it's just, it's out of control, just out of control. And God sends prophets to call them to repentance, and they basically kill them. And mistreat them and all kinds of stuff. Jeremiah being like the prophet who is like the last prophet right before God says enough is enough, right? Okay? And the prophet Jeremiah is the one who informs the uh, the, uh, the the kingdom of Judah, listen, God's sending, you know, is going to be bringing Nebuchadnezzar and he's handing you all over to him. He's going to destroy you guys and only a remnant's going to remain and he's sending you into exile. Okay, because you are a stiff-necked people, you are idolatrous and adulterous, and I mean, it's just a mess. Okay, so that all of those words of judgment, though, the silver lining in all of this is that there's also a word of gospel, if you would, that God is not done with them, and that this punishment is serving a purpose, and that it's temporal, and that it will have an end. And so God, by the prophet Jeremiah, sends word to those who are going into exile and who are in exile to let them know of the temporary nature of their exile and that God will, after a certain amount of years, bring them out of captivity in Babylon. So this is a sure prophecy by Jer- by God, by God, from God through Jeremiah to them. And this sets the framework for understanding Jeremiah chapter 29. And this is what it says, starting at verse 1. We're going to look at this in its entire uh, immediate context. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You catch that? This is a letter. This wasn't written to you. What's in what's in Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is part of a letter and it wasn't written to you. It says specifically who it was written for. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of uh, El- Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Here's what the letter said. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so who's the letter from? It's from God himself. Who's it to? Those who were taken into captivity. Was it to you? No. Was it to me? No. Not unless you were living at this time and in exile in Babylon, this letter was not written to you. This letter is not for you. Okay, now, if I find it fascinating that everybody who quotes this this letter out of context by just keying in on part of Jeremiah 29.11, they avoid all the other details. And if they were to put all the other details into it, well, all of a sudden people would realize, oh, wait a second, this is not what this letter is saying. And exactly. So here's what God said to the exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, God of Israel, to all the exiles, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. 
take wives, have sons and daughters, um, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and you will find your welfare. For, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for your welfare and not for evil, uh, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and uh, come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations into all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here's the idea. Jeremiah 29.11 is not a general promise to all believers. It's a specific word of encouragement and promise to the exiles of Babylon. And everybody who tries to make it about you avoids the context like the plague because as soon as you put it in context, you realize, oh, these are specific promises to a specific set of people in a specific historical set of circumstances. Now, this is not a general promise. It tells us something about the nature of God and how merciful he is. Okay, As the psalmist says, O Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So this tells us a lot about the nature of God, but this is not a general promise to believers. So already Jonathan Brzozog is off on a bad note because he's taken this verse way out of context and turned it into something that it isn't, as if somehow this verse promises you and me that our best days are still ahead of us here on this temporal earth. And that's not what Jeremiah 29.11 is teaching at all. And a couple things that we want to encourage you to do for this series. One, we want to encourage you to take notes. We also encourage you to go to jonathanbrozog.com and get the sermon notes. We put them up on Tuesday morning. Get plugged into one of our Talk It Over groups. So if God speaks something to you while the word's going forth, share it at our Talk It Over group. If you've got a question. God speaks something to you. Notice leaky canon stuff here. Uh, bring it up at one of our Talk It Over groups. And they meet all different times and days throughout the week. If you can't find one that works with your schedule, then maybe you need to start your own. And uh, I know it would bless you. Uh, we also want to encourage you to get today's talk. It'll be available on your smartphone or tablet by the time you leave today. And uh, it's all free. How many of you are glad for a church that resources you? So we've made all these things available to you. And um, we want you to take advantage of all these resources that are made free and made available to you to help you become what God has called you to be and to accomplish. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go with me to the book of Numbers. We're going to go OT today. It's Old Testament. And... um, The book of Numbers, chapter 13, and um, I'm going to read from the NIV. 
I'll read out loud. The rest of you can follow along. All the translations is here. If we read all together, it'll sound like Tower of Babel or something. So I'll just read. But I know it'll bless you. And um, I've got my mom and dad in the house with us today. Can you guys just stand real quick? By the way, Numbers chapter 13 is another standard text that is violently mishandled by uh, guys in the seeker-driven movement and also by those in the Word of Faith movement. I think the Word of Faith movement and the seeker-driven movement are really kissing cousins. Theologically, they're all on the same branch. But I'll explain that along the way. Mom and Dad, come on! How long have you guys been married? 37 and a half years. That is awesome. And um, I am very happy uh, for that. Praise the Lord. So this series, Back to the Future, centers around uh, what we perceive or believe that God can do in our future. You know, when you're a child, the future's always bright. And it's always like, man, I could do this. I could accomplish that. I could, you know, I want to be this. Some of you grew up in school and they, you know, I want to be the president or I want to own a company. Anybody remember those kind of things growing up, picking what you want to be? And the future is this bright thing. And, you know, then we get married and the future's bright. And, man, we're going to do this. And we're going to take over the world. And we're going to have this amazing marriage. And we're going to have this great family. And we're so in love. And, you know, and. And even with business, we're going to start a business and, you know, we're going to just, just be so successful and we're going to franchise all over the nation. It's going to be this, it's going to be that. And just the future is always just this big, bright thing. But sometimes because of disappointments or failures or insecurities or timidities or challenges or bad decisions, at some point the future can tend to become bleak and dull. And we tend to think, man, our marriage is, you know, not where it ought to be or it just doesn't seem very bright. And maybe our business doesn't seem bright. Maybe our walk with God seems bleak. Our finances seem bleak. And so this series, we want to be very intentional in getting you back to the future. Getting you back to the point where you believed in you. Where you thought the best days of your life were in front of you. Where you believed that anything was possible unto him that believeth. Can I get an amen this morning? So if you have your Bibles, let's read this. The book of Numbers, chapter 13, verse 29. And the Amalekites, well, let me, let me paraphrase this for some of you who are, who are here for the first time in church. This is the children of Israel. And the children of Israel have left Egypt. God's delivered them from Egypt. It's about a million and a half people. And they have finally come to the promised land. It's a land that God promised them. And the Bible says it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Anybody here like milk and honey? So some of you maybe not, but I'm, let me tell you what I'm convinced of. I am convinced that all the things that we eat that are healthy for us tasted good before the curse. It had to. Sweet potato pie was healthy for us before the curse. I'm convinced of it. Chocolate, all that kind of stuff was healthy for us before the curse. There is no way that my God, my Lord and Savior, made everything that is healthy for me to taste like dirt and wood and bark. And you understand what I'm saying? There is no way. I eat it and I'm like, this is, tastes terrible, but it's good for you. There's no way God made. This has to be the curse. It has to be. Am anybody with me on that? It has to be. 
Look, why is it that seeker-driven pastors all, and I mean literally all, sound like frustrated stand-up comedians? It's as if, you know, they they set out to do do stand-up comedy for a living and then washed out of the uh, the improv scene and the, and and they thought, yeah, well, I'm never going to make it as a stand-up comic. What could I, I know? I'll be a pastor. Each arms were healthy for us before the curse. I don't have no scripture for it, but I have faith. Yeah, that being the case, you sh- you're not supposed to be preaching like this. You're only to preach what God has revealed in his word. So they come up here to the Jordan River and, you know, God says, I've given you this land. So what they do, they send in spies to see the land. And this is the report that the spies come back with. So let's read it. It says the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and Amorites that live in the hill country and the Kenites that live near the Sea of the Jordan had to cross the Jordan and to go into the promised land. Verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. We can do this. But then the men, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spared and they spread among the Israelites a bad report in the land and they had explored. They said that the land that we explored is, is, is devoured by those that are living in it. And the people that we saw there says that they're giants. Everyone's a giant. Everyone's going to kill us. They're eating everybody. They're all cannibals. We're, we're dying. It says that we are grasshoppers in our own eyes and in theirs. Okay, I'm going to stop for a second here. Okay. The fact that he is starting this story where he starts it tells me that he either doesn't understand what's going on in this text or he's avoiding something that would mess up the point that he's trying to make. Okay, Numbers 13, you need to look at verse 1 in order to get the passage. Numbers 13, verse 1, here's what it says. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which... I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send men, everyone a chief among them. Okay? So here's the setup. Okay? The setup is this. These people have a specific objective word and promise from God. Who is giving them the land? Answer, God has said he is giving them the land. Now, at this time in the story, I mean, we're not very long after the Exodus here. These people, these spies, every single one of them crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Uh-huh. When Moses took his staff and by the power of God, parted the waters of the Red Sea. Every single one of these spies saw and witnessed and experienced the, the ten plagues on Egypt. Every single one of the spies saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Every single one of them heard the song of Miriam when the people, the children of Israel, saw Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea. Right? 
They participated, heard the song, maybe even sung some verses with them. Okay? That same God who destroyed the armies of Pharaoh, parted the Red Sea, went before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That same God who delivered them and did all those mighty works and wonders is the same God who promised, I am giving you the land of Canaan. I'm send out the spies to the land for which I am giving to you. They didn't have to earn it. It's all a gift, right? I'm giving this gift to you. Now that becomes the key understanding, okay? We'll get, I'll kind of unpack this more, but I want to just lay down a, a hermeneutical stake right here and say that's the key. They have a sure, un, unambiguous, completely certain promise from God that they are going to receive that land from God himself. Okay? We continue. Now let's just think for a moment. How many of you ever had somebody come up with a bad report? Everybody's against me. Everybody hates me. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. Everybody. How many of you have lived long enough to realize when people say that? It's probably not everybody. How many of you have lived long enough to realize that by now? That maybe everybody wasn't a giant. That maybe everybody wasn't a cannibal. That maybe everybody wasn't, you know, too strong for them. But because they had, they saw themselves as grasshoppers. And they said, we were the same to them. They were full of fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your son, Jesus. I pray that for the next few moments, this word would touch hearts and change lives. I pray that you'd make me a better preacher, make me a better communicator. We are some sufficient, but you are all sufficient. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. If you love him, shout amen. Let's start our talk off with a big God bless you one more time. Come on, put your hands together all over the house. How you see yourself has all the world to do with how you see the world around you. Okay, that's his thesis sentence. How you see yourself is how you see the world around you. Was the problem with the um the spies that went out to spy the land of Canaan was it that they just had a bad opinion of themselves was that their issue no actually when you t- put 13 verse 1 into play what they're doing is they're not believing the sure promise of god they don't have faith in god not that they don't have faith in themselves because Who was giving them the land? God was. The same God who delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh is the one who's going to give them the land of Canaan. So who are they doubting? Not themselves. They're doubting God. Because what their report basically tells them, tells all of us, is that they didn't believe that God was truly going to give them the land of Canaan. They thought that they had to do it on their own power and strength. They didn't believe for a second that God was really going to give it to them. They didn't believe the promise of God. That's the issue. So already the emphasis is on the wrong syllable here. And as a result of that wrong emphasis, he's not getting what this text is about, and he's not going to properly preach it. How you see yourself has all the world to do with how you see the world around you. All the men who walked into the land 
uh, that had a distorted vision of themselves came back with a distorted vision of the promised land. All the men who thought that they were weak and minimal and fearful came back with a negative report. Negative people come back with negative reports. But Joshua and Caleb came back with a positive report. They said, man, we can do this. We can accomplish this. All the other spies were full of fear, full of intimidation and insecurity. There's a light years of difference between Caleb's report, Joshua's report, and the rest of the spies. How many of you have ever heard someone name their children Joshua or Caleb, or you're named Joshua or Caleb, or have friends named Joshua or Caleb? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of those names before. How come we don't name our kids after the other spies? How come we don't, people don't name their children after, they're in the Bible. Their names are in the Bible. They're funny. You should read them. How come people don't name their children after them? How come? Because people don't remember people who, who, have, who don't have faith. People don't remember people or want to name their children after people who were scared of the promises of God. The reason why we all know Joshua and Caleb. Now notice he did mention the promises of God here. And are willing to name children Joshua and Caleb is because they were men of faith. They were men of confidence. And they believed that if God be for us, he is more than what the world against us. Even if you read it a bit further, Josh, Caleb even goes a bit further and says, you know what, man, we can do this. They are bread for us. He says, man, we will eat these people up like a sandwich. When we're done, God will use them to nourish us and we will be even better after this. We will whoop these people. Come on, anybody with me on that? He was just like, dude, we will destroy you. Full of faith, the same kind of faith when David walked up on on Goliath and said, you don't know who you're fooling with, dude. I, will, I, I killed the lion, I killed the bear, and the same God that delivered them in my hand will deliver you. I'll cut your head off. You don't know who you're fooling with. You come against me with swords, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. And he didn't have anything but a rag and a rock, but he knew how to work it. And if you take your natural and add God's super, God will do supernatural things to your life. It may not be anything. Okay, that's a slogan. That's not Christian doctrine. If you take your natural and add God's super to it, then, yeah, no, that's a slogan. That's not biblical doctrine. It's a common slogan. It's an applause line in many churches. But that's not what the Bible's teaching here. ...but a rag and a rock. And that's when they made their mistake. If they'd have let that boy run out there with all that armor, Delilah would have killed him. But they made a mistake when they let that little boy run out there with that rag and a rock. He lit that giant up because he knew how to work his gift. And a man and his gift will make room for you. Am I right about it? Yeah, I seem to think that uh, God is the one who handed Goliath over to David. Mm Mm-hmm. Caleb said, man, we will do amazing things here. We got to go in here and take this. We were bold. We are victorious. We're the children of the king. God brought us this far. God didn't bring us this far to let us be destroyed now. The same God that delivered us from Egypt will deliver us from these giants. Man, we can do it. We can accomplish it, but the other guys were full of fear, and they spread fear. How many of you know fear is contagious? And gossip is contagious. These guys had an, inf- an, an inferiority complex, and it will cause... No, that's not their problem. The problem was not that they had an inferiority pro- uh, complex. Let me give you a cross-reference to this. An- another way to understand Scripture correctly is you work with what's called Scripture interpreting Scripture. Here's the idea, is that the Bible actually interprets itself, okay? And there's times when 
the Bible gives very specific answers to very specific theological questions, okay? So if someone were to ask me, Chris, why is it that the, you know, the, the first generation of the children of Israel died in the wilderness and didn't go into the promised land? I would say, you know, it's great that you would ask that question, and the Bible answers it straight up, okay? Here's what it says. It doesn't say anything about them having an inferiority complex. Uh, the little epistle of Jude, Jude verse 5. Now, I want to remind you all, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He destroyed those who did not believe. They did not have faith and trust in God. They doubted God. They did not believe in him. So that's why they died, because they did not believe. So when Brozog here goes on about you know, they had an inferiority complex, that's missing the mark here. Okay, you, you, No, that's not true. They did not trust God. They did not really believe in the Lord. That's their problem. That's their issue. That's the reason why they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's why they gave the bad report. Cause you to lose your vision if you hang around people who are intimidated and full of fear. How many of you, when you come under attack and you're facing a challenge in your life, I don't know about you, but when I am fighting hell, I don't call those people that I know are full of timidity and insecurity. You know those people, you know what I'm talking about? So people with fear and timidity help cause you to lose your vision? Um, you and I don't have a direct promise like the, um, children of Israel did. What are you talking about? By the way, we do have a promise for the forgiveness of our sins and life eternal. Who will say, yeah, don't do it, child. Don't do it. You don't know. And what if you get out there and what if that anybody, anybody's ever heard a good message that the enemy preaches for years. He's been preaching it for a long time. It's a message called what if, because what if you get out there and you do sink? What if you get out the boat? They told you not to get out the boat in the first place. What if the lump does come back in your breast? What if you do get a layoff slip? What if they do raise the interest rate on your house and you can't keep it? What if you get fired? What if you don't pray? What if your kids get strung out on drugs? What if he does leave you? What if she does leave you for another man? What if, and right in the middle of the what ifs, Peter began to sink. Is it just me or has anybody ever heard a good message on what if? Because uh, No, I never have. Um, what does this have to do with number 13? What does whether or not your kids are on or off drugs have to do with, sorry, Numbers 13? Yeah, nothing. Because fear is the assassin of faith, but faith is the assassin of fear. Somebody say amen about that. About that. And you cannot allow insecure people to surround you. You cannot allow people to say, man, we are grasshoppers in our own eyes. They thought they were grasshoppers. Turn to your neighbor and say, why do you think you're a grasshopper? You must understand that, that it is not that they walked into the situation and then said, oh, no, we're in a situation and we're grasshoppers. They said we're grasshoppers before they even got into the situation. And grasshoppers is not something that takes on some metamorphosis and becomes a beautiful butterfly. It's just a grasshopper. And you hang around people who have grasshopper mentalities. They are small-minded, slave-mentality people who never feel that they can be anything or accomplish anything because this happened to them or that happened to them or they were like this or done that. Everybody's got a sad story. Bring me a handkerchief so we can all 
I'll sit up here and cry. The Bible says man is but a few days and full of trouble. And if one person made it in your situation, that is an indictment. That means you can make it too. Their success is an indictment against your failure. If one person went through racism and they made it, if one person was strung out and they overcame drugs, if one person was a battered wife and pulled them kids out and got themselves together and pulled themselves out, if one person went from illiterate to being literate, if one person went back to school when they were 50 and got their degree, I am sick to death of people blaming everybody else for where they are. Where are you? And you will never be, hear me, you will never be what God has called you to be as long as you shove the responsibility for your destiny on the actions of other people. Um, boy, we're way off track now. Um, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with number 13? Like nothing at all. Um, in fact, this is more or less some kind of a self-help brow beating. Most of the self-help guys, when they're doing, you know, they, they try to be encouraging. Um, this, <laughs> this is like a punch to the face in the self-help category, but this isn't biblical preaching. Can you say God is God and then say because of this person you can't make it? Small-minded mentality. They got the children of Israel out of Egypt, but they couldn't get Egypt out of them. And that's what God has to renew your mind. The Bible says be transformed by the renewing of your what? Of your mind. The Bible says it is with the mind that we serve the Lord. That's really what trouble is. All trouble does anyways to show you who you really are. Trouble comes to show you who you really are in the first place. How you respond to it. How you think about what you think about you. If you want to get a good perception of what people think about you, look at what you think about yourself. What do you think about you? What's Kurt Franklin's song? I like me. Do you like me? I like me because he likes me. So that was the reason why they weren't able to go in because they didn't like themselves. Yeah, I don't think so. I can dance to that, but I won't just for the sake of time. <laughs> but you got to have a positive attitude amongst yourself or to yourself. Am I right? Am I helping anybody? I've seen people who, who I personally thought weren't all that attractive. And, and, and then, but, but it, I, I didn't know what to think because they thought they had it going on so well. It made me think, well, maybe I'm wrong. Let me take another look. <laughs> anybody, anybody like that? You thought they weren't attractive, but they just thought they was, had it lip tips and fingertips. They just had it going on, two snaps in a circle, and just was had it. And you thought, well, maybe I'm wrong about that because they had such confidence about themselves. I've hired people and sat down and looked at their resume, and the resume didn't qualify them for the job, but they so believed in themselves. They so had such a confidence in them that I can do this job, that if you give me the opportunity, I will not disappoint you. I can do this. I believe in me. I believe in what you're doing. I want this job. And I gave them the job because they believed in themselves. They had a high standard of what they thought of themselves. you got to have the same qualities that God has. Before God created anybody to praise him, he praised himself. When he said, let there be light, and there was light. And then the next verse says, and it was good. Before he created anybody to praise him, he praised himself. He hadn't separated the firmaments from those which are above the waters. Mm, so, um, so because God praises himself, he's God. Does that mean we need to praise ourselves? Please tell me that's not what you're where you're going with this. 
from the firmaments were beneath the waters. He had spoken, brought forth land. But he said, you know what? It's not all finished, but you know what? That is good. And you've got to have that mentality. You know what? I haven't finished school, but I finished one semester. And you know what? That is good. I haven't lost 100 pounds, but I've lost 10. And you know what? That is good. I'm not out of debt, but I paid off one credit card. And you know what? That is good. And you've got to learn to bake a cake and put a little hat on and blow a whistle and throw yourself a party and celebrate yourself. Celebrate you. Stop waiting for people. Where in uh, Numbers 13 did the uh, children of Israel celebrate themselves? Um, They didn't. This is straight up narcissism of the kind that sends people to hell. This isn't biblical preaching. This isn't what the Bible teaches us to do. But to celebrate you, celebrate yourself. Whether you clap or say amen this message, I think I'm killing it up here. I mean, I'm, this is like the best message ever. And you would be wrong. It's like the worst, most satanic, self-deceiving message ever. I have amazing self-esteem. That's my problem. So I just have amazing... Yeah, right. That's exactly right. That is a problem. It's clear. It, it, this goes like to the point of sinful self-love. Amazing self I look in the mirror. You're awesome. You're sexy. Can't nobody do what you can do like you can do. Because you got to understand, I am the president and CEO and chief executive officer of the Jonathan Brozazog fan club. I love me. Wow. This is unbelievable. I, that this is what is now considered Christian preaching. Who's he preaching? Oh, yeah, he's preaching about himself and how much he loves himself. He's not preaching about Christ at all. And I am the best Jonathan Bros dog anywhere, anytime, anyplace, because can't nobody beat me being me. God made you an original. Don't die a cheap copy. Love yourself. Somebody say amen about that. One of the things I talk to young people who get in relationships and they get in relationships with people that they could do better. And, and, and I said, why don't you, what, what, you know. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, almost 2,000 years ago, wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good. By the way, this is how pagans are. Why is Paul saying that this is, is that in the last days it's going to be like this? Because this is going to get into the church. You think it's here now? Yeah, I, I think that what Paul was warning us about, what's, what theologians have for millennia referred to as the great apostasy, I think Brozog here has uh, given us an indicator that it is now upon us. What makes you feel like you can't get a man who has a job? Well, I just don't know. I just, I just, I don't know. I could just help him. And, and you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, I just don't know if I could find. See, you, you have minimized the value of yourself. 
You've minimized. When you sell yourself short, you have minimized the value of you. If I get ready to buy Pastor John or, or, or my dad or, or, or Pastor um, Ivan Tate or Pastor Joe, any of our pastors, a suit, I would never, ever, ever go to Kmart. And I'm sure they're glad about it. Because they have set a standard so high that intimidates me from giving anything to him that is less than how he treats himself. So you set the stage. You tell us who you are by how you treat yourself. So if you have an anything will do mentality, then people will do you with anything. But if you set a standard, either they have to come up to your playing field or walk off and say she thinks she's so much and walk off and leave her alone. Because the reality is when I meet you, you should already be involved in a relationship with you. I'm not helping anybody today. You've got to value. No, you're not. You're sending him to hell. Value yourself. In other words, people see you how you see yourself. If you want a good reflection of what other people think about you, look at how you think about yourself because you actually emanate pulses off of you that of your self-perception that control how others think about you. If you think you got it going on, then people think you got it going on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and confident. How, I, I got my wife to marry me because I was confident. It wasn't because I had a six-pack. I have a protective case over my six-pack. I don't want to damage it. But what, what was the purpose of him reading portions from Numbers 13 again? Because what he's saying has, like, no connection with Numbers 13 at all at this point. But follow me. I'm, y'all, who's on the follow spot up there? All right. I got him. So I got her married because I, cause I was confident. How else could I get that kind of girl to marry me unless I was confident? Confidence is attractive to women. Not arrogance, but confidence. Come on, ladies. Don't leave me out there by myself. How many women here like confident men? Confidence is very attractive to women. Not arrogance, but confidence is very attractive. And you've got to be confident in who you are. Because there's nothing worse in the world than trying to follow somebody who's not quite sure where they're going. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How do you see yourself? And what will happen is you'll be running around all of your life trying to find somebody to reinforce your self-perception if it's not generated on the inside. Listen, no one can make you feel good about you. That is so good. Somebody ought to leave here and get that tattooed on them. That's that good. <laughs> no one can make you feel good about you. You've got to feel good about yourself. Now I can come along and affirm how you feel about you, but if you don't have it, baby, I can't give it to you. You've got to have some self-confidence down on the inside and it will wear you out emotionally trying to make people feel good about themselves. You can't do it. You ever had somebody who doesn't feel, you know, you, come on, you can, I just don't know, I just don't know. Come on, you can, I just don't You give them compliments and they can't take the compliment. They just can't feel good about themselves. You didn't tell me I, I looked nice yesterday. Yes, I did, I told you, but you didn't tell me today. 
that kind of talk will make you, that's okay after, when you're dating or a day or two or a couple weeks, but after 10 years of that, that'll make you pull your lip over top of your head. I mean, how do you critique something that is just literally like diarrhea of the mouth? I mean, this is nothing but putrid, pussy, stinky, make up your own theology, diarrhea of the mouth that is masquerading as Christian preaching. I mean, at what point am I supposed to jump in and correct him? I mean, the whole premise of everything he's saying is absolutely false and contrary to what the scriptures teach. And it will cause you to become frustrated, to become short. And then to say, does this make me look fat? No, the fat makes you look fat. The dress looks fine. And it'll cause you to become very irritable and very frustrated to people. Because you can't continue to live a life of trying to make somebody feel good about themselves. Miserable. I can't say all the things that I'm thinking of when I preach. <laughs> and it will wear you out emotionally because you can reinforce it. But if they got to have that ingredients on the inside or I can't help you, you can, you can take, you cannot take a person who feels ugly on the inside and make them feel lovely. I can give you encouragement, but what happens is you can't hold the encouragement because you are leaking on the inside. That's why I love the word of God. I love the word of God because it will get down on the inside of you and fix the plumbing of your soul and allow you to retain the... If that were true, if you really believed it, you'd actually be preaching it. You're not. Encouragement that God has placed down on the inside of you. And then all of a sudden you start walking around and saying, you know what? I am who he says I am. And you know what? And I can do what he said I can do. And I can have. Oh, really? Now you're going to recite the Joel Osteen creed. Now we know you're a heretic as if we didn't know already. What he said I can have. And you know what? I'm more than a conqueror through Christ that loved us. And I'm the head and not the tail. And I'm I'm above and not beneath. And I'm a child of the king. And you know what? If God be for me, he is more than the world against me, baby. And and 10,000 shall fall at my side. But it shall not come nigh thee because God will watch over me when the enemy comes in like a flood. God will lift up a standard against him. I am not alone in this. I have a father that loves me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. So this is salvation by affirmation. Got it, yeah. He's a friend that sticks closer than any brother, and you look the devil in the eye and wipe the tears out of your own eyes and pull the pants up on yourself and say, you know what? God is for me, and I am somebody in Jesus Christ. And get some self-confidence in God. That God did not bring you this far to let you be destroyed now. Self-confidence in God. There's no such thing. You just contradicted yourself. Self-confidence in God. That doesn't make any sense. The Bible says that he that is faithful to begin a good work will be faithful to complete it into the day of Jesus Christ. Somebody shout amen about that this morning. One of the greatest mistakes that women make in relationships is they pick some little weak, limp-wristed, unconfident, uncapable, Johnny-come-lately sort of guy, and then their maternal instinct takes over, and she thinks she's going to raise a grown man and make him become something that he isn't. And listen, honey, you're going to be frustrated the rest of your life, the rest of your life, because only God can raise the dead. Only God, only God can raise the dead. Only God can deal with that situation. You are not going to be able to see, to deal with that situation. And it is exhausting trying to build somebody who is intent on tearing themselves down.
Come on, you can do it today. I just believe you. I just believe you can do it. I just believe you can get up and go to work today. Please. I've never met a woman that would not submit to her husband if he loved her the way Christ loved the church. And Christ died for the church. I see, man, I love my wife the way Christ loved the church. Christ died butt naked in the hot sun for the church. I count myself like Paul. I have not yet obtained. The bar is set a bit high. If you haven't noticed, that is quite the model. I'm trying to get there. That is quite the standard. But if we love her the way Christ loved the church, I've never met a wife that would not submit to her husband. And submission is, is a combination of two words, sub and mission, meaning he has a mission. You are submission. You come under the mission to help him meet the mission. That Oh, really? I don't think you know anything about words and where they come. It's made up of sub and mission. Oh, man. That's like saying, yeah, the atonement, man, that's at one minute, man. God has given him, and you cannot help him meet the mission if he doesn't have a mission. And there's nothing worse in the world than following somebody who does not know where they're going. I'm going to die, and I don't know when I'm going to die. No, I agree, and Jesus warns about false teachers. He says it's the blind leading the blind. Clearly, you fit into this category. And every moment I waste with you is a moment I will never have again. Please pull over and ask somebody where we are going. And that's okay if you're trying to get to the restaurant. Can you imagine that five years of your life, 10 years of your life, 20 years of your life following somebody? I just want to be saved. Get behind somebody who's got some vision, somebody who's got some confidence, somebody who will look the devil in the face and say, you know what, for Christ I'll live and for Christ I'll die. And stops, somebody who stops blaming the devil for everything. I can't get an amen about it, but I'm going to start, I'm going to keep preaching it. We got to stop blaming the devil for everything. Take some responsibility. Good leaders take responsibility. If you're raising young boys, teach them to take responsibility. If you don't, you're raising some young girl's nightmare. Take responsibility. Stop blaming the devil for everything. Christians have a tendency, the devil's busy. That's what they blame. They say everything about that. Hey, man, I tried to call you. Your cell phone wasn't working. Man, the devil's busy. They say the devil's busy for everything. Devil's always been busy. Devil ain't lazy. But you got to take responsibility for where you are. One of the first things they teach you in AA meetings or anything is to take responsibility. My name is Jonathan, and I'm an alcoholic. And until you're willing to get past that, we cannot move forward. The, the same question that God asked Adam, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? People spend very little time checking themselves out. And they're taught to be afraid of other people. It makes absolutely no difference what other people do or say about you. Because at the end of it, you can't change what people say. Let them think whatever they want to think. They're going to think whatever they want to think anyway. Take responsibility for where you are. I tell you, I'll, I'll tell you right now, the person sitting beside you is crazy. Look at them. Look at them. Notice whoever you look at you thinking the same thing about you. We're all crazy. God made men out of dirt. You keep looking for some material, you ain't going to find it. They're crazy. I save you all kind of discernment, watching, looking, checking my phone, home in the car. Ain't no thing doing that. Something wrong with the person sitting beside you. In reality, there's something wrong with you. But God still loves you. Am I right about that? You still live with you. People love you until they realize there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with all of us. Am I right about that? And God made man out of dirt. You keep looking for something material. You're just not going to find it. 
You've got to take responsibility for where you are. Anytime God asks you a question before you arrogantly think that he's trying to learn from you, you have to think maybe he's teaching again. Before you arrogantly think you can instruct the instructor, you have to think maybe he's teaching me again. Adam, where are you? Is there anything too hard for God? Am I not the God that I say that I am? Can these bones live again? Adam, where are you? It's, just, it's, it's, it's no different from if you, go, if you go to a hotel and you stay in the hotel and you, you shut the door and there's a map of the hotel with a big red dot that says, you are here. Now, if there's a fire, you don't want to know where you are. You want to know where the door is. But it does you no good to know where the door is if you don't know where you are in respect to where the door is. And in church, we do a lot of preaching and teaching and shouting about the door. And God's going to open the door for you. And God's going to make a way for you. And God's going to bless you. But we don't stop to teach you where you are. If it took you 10 years to get in debt, it could take you 10 years to get out of debt. That's why we don't do these $20 miracle offerings. And you run down the altar and say, all things are under my feet. Not really. Because all while you're shouting, they're driving your car out the parking lot. It's quiet. Y'all look like y'all dentists. But that's the reality of it. It's a taking responsibility where we are. That's why Adam was a terrible leader, because he doesn't take responsibility. And when I see him and have him, I'll hit him in the throat. It'll be easy to find him be the only one with no belly button. Because, because he doesn't take responsibility. He says, the woman that thou gavest to be with me. I wouldn't be in this mess, but you the one who gave her to me. You know, she was no better. She said the woman, um, she said the serpent beguiled me. No one assumes responsibility. And when people don't assume responsibility, the enemy deceives you into hiding. And you can spend your whole life hiding from your purpose and destiny in the bushes of excuses. And now we're allegory, allegorizing Adam and Eve. Self-perception. It's got to be determined before you get into conflict. Self-perception starts in early years. That's why I had Alexander and Nicholas come out of the car with me today. Because their normal is for dad to have a DeLorean time machine on stage. And we come out and that's just how we do church. That's just their normal. That's just how, that's just how they do it. And if that is their normal, imagine what their vision will be when they have the reins to do ministry. See, that's why we've got a, how many people want your children to go further than you? Come on, am I right about that? And don't just expose your, your triumphs, expose your failures. Because your failures are the pathway that led you to your success. Because God has done more through my failures than he has through my successes. And you will never know my success until you know my failures. starts in early years. That's why Jesus taught a very simple, profound message. says you must be born again. And not just eternal life, but he wants to make you over on the inside and repair the damaged places in your life so that he can get you back to believing the best about you. Because Satan wants you to believe the lies. Um, got any Bible passages that say that? I mean, you're making all these bumper stick and slogan applause line uh, you know, aff- affirmations and statements. But what's missing is the open Bible here. If that's true, why don't you show me that from the Bible, Jonathan? About you. And that's why he brings your sin up to you and your guilt and your shame and your past to you all the time. And the Bible says every time he reminds us of our past, we ought to remind him of his future, which is burning in the lake of fire for all eternity. Because if you flip to the end of the book, we win. Satan is a, is a bellhop. He was a butt 
butler in heaven. He's not all powerful. He cannot do everything. He was a servant. He was a butler. He was a bellhop in heaven and he's already been cast down from that. That's why his greatest strength is not in his arm or his might or his ability to control you. It is in his ability to deceive you. You're not hooked on drugs. You just think you are. He doesn't have to hook you. He just needs to make you think you're hooked. Make you think you're a failure. Make you think that you're a nobody. Make you think that you're ugly. Make you think that you're stupid. Or think that you're homosexual. Or think that you're a failure. Or think that that, that you're abusive. He doesn't have to hook you. He just needs to make you think you're hooked. Because as a man thinketh in his heart. Deceit. That's why the Bible says don't give place to the enemy. Don't allow the enemy to come in and take a ter- take territory in your life. Because when you get the word of God down on the inside of you, it makes you confident. And I want you to know, if you come to this church a month, three months, six months, a year, your self-confidence is going to come up. Why? Because the word of God gets down on the inside of you. That's why some people think you're crazy. For- yeah, no, that's that can't possibly be the case. That would require you to actually preach the word. And since you're not doing that... Um, how could they have any benefit from God's word since you ain't preaching it? For coming to church on Sunday morning and, 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 and coming early and driving half an hour. Some of you is your only day off and they can't figure out why in the world you would be in church. It's because now you value the word of God. And as the word of God's getting down in your heart, it is fixing and repairing the things that you went through. And it is causing you to have self-esteem, which ultimately will bless you in your finances, will bless you in your marriage. Because people hire people who are confident. People give promotions to people who are confident. And all of a sudden it starts blessing you in every area of your life. The Bible says, I pray that you be... Be in good health and prosper even as your soul. Yeah, I'd like to see you actually exegete an entire passage in context. In fact, why don't you work your way through one of the Gospels, you know, like John or maybe Matthew. I know that would be tough hermeneutically on you because, well, there's no slogans. Um, But, you know, why don't you do that? Because that's what makes up Bible preaching. What you're doing, ripping these verses out of context and turning them into little slogans and punchlines, that ain't biblical preaching. You ain't actually teaching what God's word says. Prospers. So if your soul prospers, your health is going to prosper. Your finances are going to prosper. Whatever is on the inside is going to come out on the outside. If you believe it, give God praise all over the house today. I'm out of time. John, uh, Third John 1 and 2, the Bible says, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in good health, even as your soul does prosper. I'm going to give you three more verses. I'm going to, I'm going to, finish this message in two minutes i can hardly wait jeremiah 29 11, 4, i know the plans that I- yeah we already went through that you're ripping it out of context i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you that god has a plan for your life he has planned it he has planned it out that's not what this verse is saying read it in context it says you know build houses have children talking to the exiles You are not a mistake. The enemy did not snatch the steering wheel from God, and he's driving your life to hell. God didn't fall asleep at the wheel. The Bible says God never sleeps, and he never slumbers. He is in complete control of your life. Psalms 41 and 11 says, For this I know, that the Lord is with me, for he has not allowed my enemies to trample over me. That's a bad verse right there. You better memorize that, because that has saved me many days. When you question, is God with you? 
Is God for you? You'll know that God is for you, for he has not allowed your enemies to trample over you. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, For the kingdom of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. That God knows you. That he knows how many bills are on the kitchen counter. That he knows how much money is in your checking account. That he knows how many times you've applied for a job and have gotten... This is the apple God that uh, Martin Luther warns about. You know, just follow the formula. You know, say the affirmation and then boom, you, you put God in your debt. You know, he's like a magic genie. You know, you, you say the proper affirmations and... And, um, well, make sure that you have the the appropriate level of faith that's necessary for the miracle that you need. And whammo, blammo, you've earned yourself a miracle from God. A negative report. He knows the doctor's report. He knows what's going on with your child. He knows what's going on in your relationships. He knows your thoughts while you're still trying to gather them in your head. He sees you when you hold your pillow at night and counsel yourself and tears run down your face. And nobody, you thought nobody saw it, but God saw it because he cares how you feel. Other people don't care, but the Bible says he is touched by the feelings. The feelings of my infirmity. That he cares how I feel. And if you're sitting there today and you're going, man, I've just been dealing with fear and depression and low self-esteem and worry. You're, You're a sinner in need of the forgiveness of your sins won by Christ on the cross. Trust me, I understand that bills can stack up, but that is not your problem. And that's not the problem that the church is uh, is to address. <sighs> not it, it's to address it in the sense of teaching people to do good works and love and serve their neighbor, because they've been set free by Christ and His shed blood on the cross, and they are now set free to love and serve their neighbors, so they can help their neighbors in need. But here, you're not even preaching good works. You're not even preaching Christian charity. You're pre- basically teaching everybody to sit on their haunches, literally sit on their haunches and say these affirmations and expect pie to fall out of the sky when you should be preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and loving and serving your neighbor. Then what would happen is, is that the person who has the bills stacking up in their home would go to church and share with their brothers and sisters their need, and their brothers and sisters would in kindness and charity and love give them the financial assistance they need. See, that's the wicked thing about this kind of preaching. It is so selfish, so narcissistic, and so self-centered that people don't even have the foggiest notion of looking past their own nose to help their brothers and sisters in Christ in need. Instead, everybody's saying these magic affirmations and expecting God to open up heaven and shower gold on them. Unbelievable. And anxiety, and it affects you all these areas of your life. My biggest regret, people say, Pastor Jonathan, what's your biggest regret? My biggest regret so far up to this moment is that I just feel, I'm in ministry what now? I'm in ministry 10, almost 11 years. And and I guess if I had to say conservatively, six of those years were absolute hell. I want to say nine and a half. But I'll say six. Six of those years were absolute hell. 
And you know what? God brought me through every single situation and challenge and difficulty that I faced. Every single one he brought me through. My biggest regret was that I didn't just sit back and trust God more. I went went through such stress. Stress, fear, worry, anxiety, stomach issues, problems, can't sleep at night, taking sleeping pills. I was so stressed. I went to the doctor. They gave me, they wanted to put me on medication to help de-stress me. And I said, I'm not doing that, man. I just believe God can deliver me from this and just went to God. And, and, and within the last couple of years, God has really just totally, I've given all of that to God. And I said, God, you know what? No matter how much I stress about it or worry about it, none of it changed. I that's why the Bible says, what man by worry can add one minute to his life? And I said, you know what, God, I could have, my biggest regret was that, why didn't I just sit back and enjoy the ride? Because where we're at right now, we were going to get here anyway, by God. And I could have been sitting back drinking lemonade, enjoying life, enjoying the ministry, enjoying the call of God in my life, instead of worrying and stressing. We got to stop that. We got to get rid of that. And it takes faith to open your hand to God. Some of you right now, you need, you need, you're in a job. You just got to get, you can either, you need to let go of that. You can, God, God wants to move you from that. See, some of you, the only way God can teach you is for you to go through pain because you have fear. You don't trust him enough. And so God wants to give you a career job, but you're, you're too scared to, to quit Wendy's. So God has to fire you from Wendy's because if he didn't fire you from that job, you would never go. Because you wouldn't, you don't trust him enough to be unemployed for a month. You're worried about what God's, how you're going to make it through Christmas. But God says, I'm going to do something in your life in February. It's going to bless you for the next 30 Christmases. You understand? And where does God say that again? It's not in his Bible. This is just fantasy stuff. You're preaching delusions. So you don't trust him. Some of you are in a relationship right now with someone. You know you don't want to be in a relationship with that person. That person doesn't even make you happy. You don't like it. You fuss and whine and complain about it. But you're scared to let go of it. Because if I let go of this, I'll be alone and I'll never have anybody. And I'll die alone. And, And you're scared to let go. See, anybody can snatch. But it takes real faith to open your hand to God. And just say, God, man, take whatever you want to take. Send whatever you want to send. I'll praise you when they come and I'll praise you when they go. The old song says, because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Some of y'all don't know that, but it was stuff that I got saved singing that stuff. And sometimes, I'll end with this, but sometimes you never realize that God is all you need until God is all you got. And his teaching methods are incredible. The word must be lived out. You never know that he's a healer unless you walk through sickness. You never know he's a provider unless you walk through lack. You never know that he's joy unless you walk through depression. So he says, come on, we're going to walk through layoff. Come on. Come on. You trust me. Come on. Come on. We're going to walk through sickness. Bad report coming. Come on. You trust me? Come on. Who trusts me? Come on. We're going to walk. We're going to walk through a cancer scare. We're going we're gonna to walk through layoff. We're going to walk through problem children. We're going to walk through marriage relationships and, and you have to give up a man you can see for a man you can't see come on you trust me we're gonna walk through depression and you're gonna find joy in me so that when we worship now you can praise him for yourself as a healer 
as a provider, as joy. You must know him for yourself. God doesn't have grandkids. He's got kids. And he loves you. And he's committed to you. You get some out of this today. Come on, give God praise all over the house. No, I didn't get anything from this. Nothing, nothing, even remotely biblical. Just some kind of a brow-beating self-help pep talk where at the end you, 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 know, you, you play the sappy music and sound all kind and everything. like This is just the most tyrannical nonsense I've ever heard in my life. So I want all of my students to, um, they're going to come out here in just a moment, but I want to pray for you. And every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jonathan, I'm here and I need to recommit my life to Christ. My future, my walk with God, I'm dealing with relationship challenges, financial, my future's just been bleak. And I want to get back to believing the best days of my life are in front of me. If that's you, maybe you've never done it before. Maybe you've done it before and you've just gone in the wrong direction. If that's you, I want to make two promises to you today. Number one, I promise not to embarrass you. And number two, I promise not to bring you down front. But if you're here and you say, Pastor Jonathan, I want to pray this prayer with you. I want to recommit my life to Christ. I just want you to look up at me and make eye contact with me. God bless you. Why would anyone want to recommit their lives to Christ? You haven't even talked about him. They know nothing about him. Bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. I'm done. I, just, I can't. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to spontaneously combust. I mean, what an utter bag of nonsense. Complete slogans and ripped out of context verses worn to, you know, woven together in some nonsensical, non-biblical tapestry of narcissism. Good night. What has happened to Christ's church? How is it that these are the types of men who are pastors of, quote, growing churches? Unbelievable. So, so what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>